The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. All right, we are going to go ahead and get started. Um, a couple of housekeeping logistics issues. Um, I already told you about the bathrooms and the snacks. I want to mention to you the books that we've got in back. Um, they're all really good. Phenomenal books. And so I'm not going to walk through all of them, um, except to say that they're all really, really good. And uh, I, I would, if I had to recommend one book um, for everybody in this room, no matter what your marital status is, um, is this book, Washed and Waiting. Um, it's written by a Wheaton grad who um, is a homosexual Christian. I'm writing about his battle against sin. Um, it, it is not simply one of the best books I've read on homosexuality. It's actually one of the best books I've read about uh, the nature of sanctification and just the, the life of being a disciple of Jesus, um, regardless of what your particular struggle is. And, and so um, any chance I get, I hand this book out, give it away. Um, and, uh, and, and so I just want to commend it to you um, as strongly and as joyfully as I can. Um, we've got two marriage books up there. Uh, one is called The Me of Marriage by Tim Keller. The other is What Did You Expect uh, by Paul David Tripp. Um, if you find yourself trying to figure out what marriage is, Keller's book is amazing. If you find yourself at that point, probably some of you maybe six weeks in, some of you went, got a little longer, so maybe six months in, and you find yourself, surprise, surprise, just a little bit disillusioned, kind of waking up in the morning going, what did I do? Um, uh, the What Did You Expect book is phenomenal. If, you, if you've never been at that point, um, then just keep going. You're great. So we'll, we'll be fine. Um, I want to recommend those books. Uh, setting up kind of where we're going in the next two nights. Tonight is um, me talking a lot. And so um, I want to apologize up front if you didn't want to come and hear me talk a lot uh, tonight. Um, I'm just going to teach on a biblical framework um, for what does it mean to bear the image of God first off. I mean, how does that connect, particularly in light of the gospel, to understanding of sexuality, understanding of homosexuality, understanding to, of marriage, um, both for good and for ill. And so um, that's kind of going to take the whole night and then some. Um, but I promise to be done at 8.15. Um, and, and so we'll take a break in the middle uh, for you to go to the bathroom, grab something to eat or drink, and then we'll come back and talk some more. Tomorrow night when you come back, um, we will gather here, and then we're going to break up into a number of different groups and a um, bunch, bunch of different breakouts throughout the building. Um, the first will be on singleness. Um, I'm not sure where these will be located. Um, he's going to tell me where they're going to be located. The singleness one will be in here. Um, the engaged couple breakout will be upstairs in the, the secret room up there in the corner. And then the uh, married couple breakout will be downstairs in the basement. And so um, we're going to have those three breakouts going. It's going to be much more interactive um, and much more tied specifically to um, those three seasons, um, those three kind of um, wh where you are. So that'll be tomorrow night. Again, starting at 6.30. Be done at 8.15. Um, we will be doing Q&A tomorrow night. Um, and so, and, and the questions will be kind of um, this will be a little bit self-explanatory, but there are question cards in the pews. Um, and so as questions arise tonight, uh, maybe you came here with a burning question um, that you wanted to ask. Um, you can write that down, um, turn those in at the end of the night uh, at the glass jars um, that are either going to be over on the snack table or at the front doors in back. And I think that's all I have to say before we begin. That's all I have to say before we begin. Um, except for this. Uh, tonight, it's, it's been a little bit, um, 
a little bit overwhelming today thinking about preparing for, I'm trying to pull together, man, just pages and pages and pages of notes um, to, to realize that we're coming together in this room to talk about um, what is easily one of the most, um, not just controversial, but sensitive and difficult topics to talk about. Um, it's a topic that's not often addressed in churches. Um, it, it's a topic that when it is addressed in churches, uh, sometimes it's addressed very, very poorly. Um, it, it's an issue that um, probably um, every single person in this room is bringing a lot of baggage to this conversation. But whatever background you have, whatever, wherever you've come from. And so the opportunities for me teaching tonight to, to, um, to, to shame you inadvertently, um, to say something that could be easily misunderstood, is pretty high. And um, so even as I, uh, even as we pray and as we begin, man, I just would ask that you would pray for me. Um, I, I, uh, if I say something strange, if I say something upsetting, um, I want to I invite you to come and find me after this and let's talk. Um, my hope for you, we, we may disagree on something, um, but at the end of the day, my, my, um, I think all of our pasts are littered um, with sin around this issue. Um, and and uh, that doesn't necessarily necessitate um, promiscuousness. Um, but but I, I think that all of us have had a past, and, and it could have been abuse, it could have been from, from just a, a really, really pietistic background that, that saw all sexual behavior just in general as an evil thing. It could have been from promiscuousness. It could be from just friendships and relationships and people that you really care about and love um, who, who will be hurt, would, would be hurt by hearing some of the things that the Bible has to say about sexuality. And my hope and my prayer for us as a community is not just that tonight would be about us kind of I mean, just throwing a bunch of stuff on the wall and saying, hey, deal with it. But, but that we as a community would wrestle with what is faithfulness to Jesus look like? But what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to walk alongside brothers and sisters? Um, all of us broken, all of us twisted by sin, all of us with desires that if left unchecked by grace will destroy us. What does it look like to struggle together as fellow strugglers, to walk alongside one another, to exhort one another, to encourage one another? And what does it look like to just be, and frankly, excited about sex? Like that's, that's, I, that sounds stupid to have to say that, but like I'm in church and everybody says sex is, we shouldn't talk about sex or sex is bad. Hey, sex is amazing. It's wonderful. It's glorious. Like uh, if you walk out of here with thinking like, man, sex is, ooh. I want you to walk out of here thinking, man, sex is one of the greatest gifts God's ever invented. And by the way, if you have kids here tonight, we're going to talk about sex. Sex. I'm just trying to say it. It's helpful that my wife is not here in the front row because every time I say sex in a sermon, her eyes go like, like this. Um, so she's not here. Um, but we're going to talk about this thing, about these things, and, and, and we think these things are good. And last thing I want to say before we pray and actually get into it. Um, we're unapologetically Christian, which means we're a part of a stream, we're a part of a tradition. But we actually believe that there's um, wisdom that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. It's been given to us by the God who made the world. In other words, we're dependent on divine revelation in this book. We're not just kind of trying to work from common sense. We're not just working from our own desires. We're not just working from what seems to make sense to us of the world. But we're actually, we actually believe that faithfulness to God, faithfulness to Jesus, it means taking seriously the tradition that we're a part of. It means taking seriously the things that he said in this book. And here's the thing. There's all kinds of things in this book that are hard and that people hate. They really hate. There's things in this book that I'm learning to like. <laughs> 
And, and, and which means that we're going to talk about things tonight that, um, and we're going to talk about them in a way that says, hey, we don't know best. Someone else does. The God who made the world, the God who invented a thing like sex, knows more about it, how it's to be used, what it's for, than anybody else in this room. You are free to disagree with that. Absolutely free to disagree with it. But as a church, this is where we're going to stand. Um, I, I've spent the, the best part of my life uh, oftentimes just trying to figure things out on my own. Um, what makes sense to me. Um, and, and I've found over and over and over again that when I do that, I'm a fool. And, and, and I don't, I'm just, might as well offend people now. And, and I think all of us are fools. <laughs> that, that what marks wisdom is a blatant dependence on the wisdom of God given to us. So that's what we're going to do tonight, okay? Sex! Okay, let's pray. (laughs) God, what must you be like? You didn't create a gray, flat world with rocks and, and nothing else to look at. You didn't create us, um, you could have given us each our own planets to live out our lives on our own, kind of looking at a gray, flat world, um, trying to discern what you're like merely from a list of propositions. But, but no, you, you filled the world with people, you created communities, you created families, um, you, you filled it with color, massive, glorious, overwhelming color. You created a thing like rain, where, where water literally falls out of the sky. Nobody has to put a sprinkler up there. You just, you, you just speak the word. You have the thought and, and water falls. Grass grows up out of the ground so we don't have to walk on rocky soil that hurts our feet. Mountains shoot up into the sky and declaring to us our smallness. You invent a thing like sex. The strangest most awkward, most beautiful thing imaginable. And you create it and and you give it to us freely as a God who is joyful and happy, who who gives us this gift that we might know you, that we might serve you. And God, even tonight, that we might begin our our, our discussions about what what this thing is and what it's for and how it shapes marriage and how it shapes our humanity, that we begin, God, before we ever get there, may we stop for a moment and consider what must you be like You made sex, you made grapes so that when they rot, they turn into wine. You made rain and mountains and trees and oceans and you plucked islands and put them in the middle of those oceans and and, and put crazy guys on boats so they'd find them. Oh God, may we never stop marveling at what these things say about your character, about your creativity, about your goodness, about your your wonderful sense of humor. And so God, I pray that tonight ultimately would not be merely about sexuality. It wouldn't merely be about marriage or singleness or these crazy desires that we don't know what to do with. Rather, tonight ultimately would be about a, a, a deep reflection on your character and who you are and what you're like that we might live in the light of it. Not taking any of these things lightly or treating them as small. But God, wielding these desires, wielding these gifts, 
all of them, be they marriage or singleness, for your glory, for your name, and for your renown. In your name we pray, amen. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin tonight um, with asking a first question, a question of prolegomena, a question of, um, of first theology. What do we need to believe first? What do we need to understand first about what does it mean to be a man or a woman? What does it mean to be created by God? What does it mean that there is a God? Um, we, we begin with those questions first, and then from those questions, um, we're going to move unapologetically to deal with um, the nature of sex, the nature of marriage, and, and all of these things. And so um, I, I want us to um, begin in Genesis chapter 2. Um, actually, I want to actually begin a couple of verses back. I want us to get this section in. So begin in chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we begin right off the bat with just a foundational, basic, relatively easy Christian commitment that we begin with tonight that has really massive, unending um, repercussions as we think about what what this means um, to, to be human. God created man. God created us. I mean, I mean, they're mankind. So every man and woman, God, God created them. Um, as, as a result of this, just one repercussion of that is that we are not autonomous. That we didn't pull ourselves up from the sludge. That we didn't kind of put our molecules together to create human beings. And um, we are made by God. And specifically, we're made to reflect what he's like in the world. And, and that entails at least two things. One, a sense of purpose. That you're here. That, that your life, um, that your actions, your words, your thoughts, everything about you should reflect to the world what the nature and the character of God is. In other words, other people should be able to look at you. I should be able to look at you. I should be able to look at Riley and see something in his beautiful, slightly balding head uh, about the nature and the character and the majesty and the creativity and the sense of humor that God has. I should know something about God because I'm looking at my brother. That's true of every single person in this room. You have been given a task, and that task is to reflect into the world who God is and what he's like. To reflect that he's trustworthy, that he's good, that he's wise, that he knows what he's talking about. Two, but it doesn't just entail a sense of purpose. Um, I believe that this also, as it carries through the rest of Scripture, actually entails a sense of identity, something that's actually intrinsic to what it means to be human, that, that men and women uniquely display the, the beauty of God, the, the, the nature and the character of God. Not just in what we do, not just in our obedience to Him, in our trust in Him, in our worship of Him, but, but as I exist, as I simply am, God is intrinsically placed within me as Brian Brown, an, an aspect of His beauty, of His character, of what He's like. So when you look at me, not just what I do, not just what I say, not just my, my acts of obedience or disobedience, um, but, but when you look at me, there are things to see in me, there are things to see in my brother, there are things to see in my wife that simply display to me in, 
in so many creative ways who God is and what he's like. In other words, God doesn't merely come to us um, in the form of ideas or propositions or religious ceremony. Those things are all vital and very, very important. I want to downplay the role of us gathering on Sundays and singing these songs and the Spirit of God and filling our worship. I don't want to downplay that at all. But, but he hasn't simply come to us in those abstract ways. He's actually come to us in very tangible ways. In other words, he's placed us in a world in which we live in a community of human beings that we interact with all the time. I got my hair cut right before I came here, and so there's a person awkwardly touching my hair and my beard. And where else in life does someone touch your beard or your hair? Like if one of you came up to me right now and touched my beard, I, I would push you away. Um, like that's just awkward. But, but in all of life, we constantly are interacting with human beings all over the place. God, in other words, has put us in a world, and it's important that we begin to recognize what's actually happening when we do that. But we're not just talking to, to another possible use, uh, a possible means to an end that I'm trying to achieve. I am looking into the eyes of, I'm having a conversation with, um, as I just was, a conversation with a woman who has a daughter. And, and, and there's a whole story there. And there are aspects of her story that reflect to us who God is and what he's like. And so we begin with this kind of basic idea at the, at the foundation of what it means to be Christian, what it means to be human, is that we understand ourselves to be created. And created in a network of relationships where there's a whole bunch of other people that we run up against, that, that we know, that we interact with, that we talk to, that we either serve and love or use to our own ends. But we're not created as monads, kind of living our life as we want on our own. But rather, we're created by God and we're created in, in a network of relationships with other people in which we impact them and shape their lives and they shape ours. Um, one of the foundational kind of convictions of our culture, not, I pray, the, the, the culture of our church, but the culture of our city um, and our nation, is that of radical autonomy. That, that my personhood, my identity, is not subject to a creator or enmeshed with um, a, a network of relationships with other people, but rather I can exist, achieve happiness, achieve my ends, achieve my goal, choose my own morality, um, quite independent from anybody else. In other words, my fulfillment, my joy, my happiness is autonomous from anybody else in the universe, be it God or be it other people. That that is a foundation, it is foundationally a denial of, of, of just these two simple realities that are established for us right off the bat in Genesis 1 and 2. One, you're created, which means at the, at the very least, you're subject to a creator, but one who has designed the universe in a particular way, who's designed everything in this universe in a particular way. And two, he's made us in such a way as that we're bound up together. He's going to say in Genesis 2, um, in the text I eventually wanted to get to, um, God says, beginning in verse 15, and Lord God took the man, this is chapter 2, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day, you sh the day of you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, now catch this, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So right off the bat, we have this idea that it's not good. 
everything else that he said, if, if you read the, the context of Genesis 1 and 2, one of the things that comes ringing at you over and over and over again is God makes birds and he calls them good. He makes trees and he calls them good. He makes the ocean and he calls it good. He creates th- a thing after thing after thing after thing. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And it's like the record skips. It's not good. In other words, not only are we created, we're created to be in relationship. We're created to not be alone. And I think this points to something probably most foundational about what it means to be human. And we're going to kind of begin to pull these things together for us. You were made, most of all, for communion with the living God. This is why you were here. To know the living God. To know him, to trust him, to delight in him, to know what he's like, to explore for eons some aspect of his character, to to marvel at his beauty, at his creativity, at his power, at his goodness, at his love, at his righteousness, at his holiness, at his severity, at his endless knowledge. That's why you were made. To have communion with the living God. This is exactly what we find in Genesis chapter 3, um, immediately following the fall, is that there is a, an intimate communion that exists between us and between God that we were made for. Um, you rush ahead, we're going to talk about sin later tonight, but, but sin interrupts that communion, interrupts that relationship, breaks that relationship. And so we love here on Sundays, we love it in every aspect of life for our church, to talk about the gospel, to talk about what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection, that he's atoned for our sins. But, but, but lest you think he simply atoned for our sins that we might be forgiven, there's this beautiful text in First Peter where Peter talks about the death of Jesus, not as being an end unto itself, but he says um, that, that Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. In other words, the goal, the end of everything that Christ did was that you and I might be restored to fellowship with, communion with, covenant relationship with the living God. And so I want to kind of wrap up kind of part one of where we're going tonight with with just this summary. One, you were made, which means your morality, your way of living is not autonomous. It's subject to the one who has made us. Two, you were made for community. You were made to be known and to know. You were made to interact with other people. You're made to know people, to love people, to serve people, and you were made to be known. That, that people might know who you are, that they might see what you're like, they might know, might know your foibles. I like that word. I'm going to use it more often. They might know your, your balderdash foibles, and they, that they might know your flaws, that they might know and you're, 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 that, that you're the person that never texts back or, or never answers her phone, even though you pay for your wife's phone thing. She doesn't turn answer. Anyway, um, it, it, to, to, that, you were made to, that those things were meant to be known about you, that, that people were supposed to see and enjoy aspects, unique aspects of the character and the beauty of God as they get to know you and they walk alongside you. This is what you were made for. And here's the thing. As you were made to know and commune with God, there's this link between what we're supposed to experience forever and ever and ever with God someday and why he's, why he's made us to live in community. 
Those things aren't disconnected. We're going to see how that relates to sex in a minute, and particularly to marriage in a minute. But I want you to see this. Um, God has made you to know something of his grace. And where else do you experience his grace but when you've betrayed someone you love and they forgive you? You were made to know something of the kindness of God. And where else do you experience that kindness more tangibly than the kindness of another human being? You're made to experience forgiveness. You're made to experience beauty and creativity. And there, there, um, there are few experiences like getting to talk to somebody. There are artists in this church. I mean, they just blow my mind with their ability to creatively display truths about God, beautiful things about the world through their art. That, that's not just about them. That, that is um, a, a refraction. It's, a, it's like I'm looking at this mirror that is refracting down to me the beauty and the creativity of God. And so, so before we ever get to sex, this should change the way you live your life tomorrow. When you go buy coffee at, at, at Black Eye Coffee tomorrow morning, you walk in there, and you're a little bit nervous because you feel like it's a mocha day, um, but you always look down on yourself and you order a mocha because it's not a pour over. And so, um, and you're thinking through those thoughts, and is the cashier going to be upset with me um, if I ask for cream? Um, and, and, and then in that moment, realizing the person taking your order, and there's aspects of who she is that, that are unthinkably beautiful reflections to you of who God is and what he's like. This is the world we live in. And, and, and that's a rabbit trail I'd love to chase for the next hour because the ramifications of that on, on concepts like entrepreneurship and business and, and all of those things are fun. Somebody should write a book. But, um, but, but, but that's, that, that's foundational to who we are. You were made to experience and know communion with God. Um, you experience something of that communion, something of that beauty as we interact with other people, other human beings, and we were created. We were created and made subject to a creator. Now, um, I, I want to move on, and in the light of that, I, I want to talk about singleness. Um, and I want to begin by saying that I think the word singleness is a really stupid word. Um, it's a really stupid label. Because it defines a human being in terms of whether or not they're married to another human being. As though you can't be a fully human being unless you're fully joined to another person. That being said, I'm going to use the word single all the time tonight. So um, I hope it's okay. Um, and so I just want to say a couple of things right off the bat. Because we are going to talk about marriage um, Later in the evening, we are going to talk about sex in the evening. I just want to say, given the definition we've just established as what does it mean to be human? To reflect the glory of God, to, to live in a network of relationships whereby you lay down your life for the good of people, other people lay down their life for the good of you, in which you see and experience the beauty of God, the goodness of God, and, and you put on display the goodness of God and, and the fullness of who God is in these relationships. Um, I, I just want to say this. Right off the bat, your humanity does not depend on your ability to get married. You being a fully formed image bearer of God in the world, on mission with God, bearing the image of God, reflecting to, God, reflecting to the world what God is like, loving people well, serving people well, being loved in return, none of that hangs or is dependent on you receiving the gift of marriage. It's not. It's absolutely not. 
Paul wasn't married. Jesus wasn't married. Unless you sit there and go like, well, he's Jesus. Who could be married to Jesus? Um, like, not me. Um, like, the, here's the thing that, that I want us to most see about Jesus. Is Jesus, not only does he come as God to redeem humanity, he also comes to, comes to us as the most perfectly formed expression of what true humanity was supposed to be. He's not married. He never had sex. So let me go there as well. Your fulfillment as a human being is not, not only is it not dependent on you getting married someday, it's not dependent on you experiencing sex. You can joyfully bear the image of God in the world. You can experience real intimacy with other human beings, real friendship. Um, And I'll, I'll just go ahead and mention this book. Um, this book is called Spiritual Friendship, and it's written by the same guy who, who uh, wrote the book Wash and Waiting that I mentioned earlier. Um, it is um, essentially a, a, a book that, that expounds kind of a theological understanding of what friendship is and how this understanding of friendship has been essentially and notably lost in Western culture. And as a result, it's had massive and devastating effects on, on our understanding of what intimacy even is because we don't know what it means to be friends anymore. And so we think that to experience real intimacy, to experience real love, to experience real care, we have to have sex with somebody. And the point of his book is to say, actually, no, you don't. That's what friendship, at least Christian friendship, was always supposed to be about, is knowing and being known. And so I want to begin um, a discussion about singleness with just that basic proposition. I'm not saying it won't be hard. I'm not saying that there are not massive difficulties um, um, that, 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 that some, of, some of us, some of you will experience because, um, because of never getting married and, and, never, and um, never getting to enjoy um, sex within the context of marriage. But, but you being a faithful image bearer of Jesus, you find fulfillment and communion with Jesus. You being known and you knowing others does not depend on sex, and it doesn't depend on marriage. And, and there's been problems that have arisen within the Christian community, um, at least since I was in a youth group. Um, so if you've been around the church, um, hopefully you'll recognize some of this stuff. Um, if you haven't been around the church, um, you can laugh at us. It's fine. Um, so does anybody remember True Love Waits? Everybody had to sign the cards. They put, like, nails down in, like, Washington, D.C. And the, I don't know if that was legal. But um, they put stakes in the ground in Washington, D.C. Everybody signed your cards, said true love waits. And six weeks later, they all slept with their boyfriends but, or girlfriends. Um, but, but, um, but this concept that's been at the heart of kind of Christianity all along, and it, and it just infiltrates youth groups everywhere, this idea that true love waits, um, you need to refrain from sex, refrain, like, all the debates about how far is too far, is this too far, where's the line, and those are really interesting questions, I've gotten those questions, um, and, and, and that, that, kind of, that kind of mindset, which is geared towards kind of a, a foundational understanding that you exist in this season, but for all of you in this room who aren't married, simply waiting for true love, waiting for real fulfillment, Waiting for the day you can finally be human, you can finally fulfill the mission of God, you can finally be what God always intended you to be. And so we, we do this to our children, we do this to our youth groups, we do this, and it begins to frame all of life um, for single people, sorry for the word, um, for single people through the, through the entire lens that the end goal, the goal of my singleness is to get married. That's why I'm here. Do you may experience that. 
If not, we'll move on. That's why I am single. I'm single because I want to get married. And so I'm going to kind of live within this season waiting to get married. Um, And it sets up a whole basic orientation that this is simply a season of preparation. And I just want to challenge you tonight. I, I did this a year ago and I want to keep doing it over and over and over again. The things that I talked about at the beginning, that's true whether you're married or whether you're single. You have been called into a community called the church. You've been sent into a world filled with people who desperately need to be loved, need to be known, need to be cared for. And you have been placed in that context. And and maybe someday um, God will provide you with a husband or a wife. But for right now, he hasn't. And your calling is to lay down your life for the flourishing of people. That's why you're here. Your your calling, your reason for existence is to reflect the goodness and the glory and the beauty of God in the way that you serve others, in the way that you love others, and ultimately the way that you trust Him, love Him, delight in Him, find your identity and your satisfaction in who He is and not what may or may not be out there for you. This is your call. This is what it means to be human. And you don't have to be married to do it. And here's the thing. Um, As a church, God's given us all kinds of different gifts. And there are married people in this room, and you enjoy a gift from God that you should give thanks for every single day. That you get to experience, as we're going to talk about after our break, um, a a kind of communion with Him, a kind of intimacy intimacy with Him that, that is unique to those who get to experience marriage. But those of you who are single in this room, do you know how Paul speaks of singleness as a gift and not as often as talked about like it's a talent. <laughs> Although some, some people have a talent for it. But, um, <laughs> but like a gift, like a, like a package given to you. And maybe you don't want it. You're like, get this away from me. But, but it's actually, the way that Paul speaks of it, it's not like a special talent or special power, like Joel can tell you where to go get coffee, but, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a gift that has been given to you. And he speaks of it as a gift that that there is a kind of communion with him, a kind of intimacy with him that I don't get to enjoy. Do you realize that? A kind of freedom to experience his love, experience dependence on him, experience intimacy with him, that because I'm married, because to use the language of Paul, I'm encumbered with the gift of marriage. You get to experience it and I don't. There's a kind of freedom, a kind of liberation in, in, in obeying and being a part of the mission that God has called us to in this city and among the nations of the earth. And this is actually the, the specific place that Paul goes, that you are free to engage in, to, 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 to run hard in the service of, that I can't. That because you're single, there, there's gifts that God has given you, opportunities that he's given you, um, a calling that he's given you even that is unique to you. And, and I don't know if, if, if you're going to be um, not married for the next um, 60 years, or you're going to be not married for the next six months. But for right now, you, you, your call, at least according to the way I read the scriptures, is not to bemoan your singleness, not to bemoan this season, however long it is. And maybe it's like a, a whole life season. <laughs> but whatever it is, to receive it as a gift and, and to flourish in it as you obey God, as you trust God, as you love God, as you delight in all that he is for you in Christ. 
And that you have an opportunity to do that in a way that the people in this room who are married can't do. Um, the, the, the other thing I would say, and this is the, the, the last specific thing I would say, um, not only do you have an opportunity to engage with, know God, experience intimacy with God in a way that's unique, not only do you get to engage with the mission that God's called us to that, that is unique, I mean, you also are desperately needed in this church. Um, and, and one of the things that, that we have tried to avoid is um, singles and marrieds clumping together away from one another. Um, in gospel communities, we don't, we don't want the 5 p.m. service to be our merely kind of single college student service and the, the morning services to be the, the old people that have to come with their kids. Um, in, in the end, like, we, we, here, here's the deal. Like, there's an expression of the goodness of God, the beauty of God, the glory of God that you have that I desperately need to see, that I need to experience. In other words, we need to be friends. So, I'm not just talking about me, although... I need friends, but like married people in this church, here's one of the things that happens to you when you get married, and everybody says it's not going to happen to them, um, and sometimes they can avoid it, but then they have kids, there's just no avoiding at that point, that they sequester themselves from the rest of the world, right? They don't have friends anymore, they don't go out anymore, they don't talk to people anymore, um, they certainly don't talk to single people anymore. Here's the thing, we desperately need each other in this body. There are things that you see, that you know about God, that you experientially know about God, that the married couples in this church um, need to see, and they will only see it and experience it through friendship with you, through walking alongside you. Likewise, there are things that married couples in this room, that, that, that parents in this room experience and know of the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God. That, that you will not experience unless you come alongside those couples and actually um, embed your lives there. And, and, and please hear me, there's cost in all of this, right? Um, like those of you that are used to not having to deal with the, kind of that three-year-old stage. Um, nobody in here has three-year-olds, I guess. The, the stage where they're just, they're just, they're not quite old enough to play on their own and yet they're, they don't have to be held. So it's, there's this constant... I'm almost free to let them go play, but I'm not quite free to let them go play. Those of you who don't have to experience that on a night-to-night basis, like, you're going to have to experience that. Um, and that, honestly, is a gift. In other words, God has filled this church with gifts. And some of it's marked by singleness, some of it's marked by, by marriage, some of it's marked by having kids, some of it's marked by not having kids, some of it's marked by, by, by couples in this church that have, have been given the gift and the calling to adopt children. And you will experience the grace of God and the beauty of God in ways that you can hardly imagine. Not just if you're married with kids, not just if you're married, but as single people. You'll know something about what it means to be adopted by God and that you would never know otherwise um, unless you go and you find these couples in this church that can literally put on display for you over dinner what it looks like that God has adopted us put his name on us and called us to himself and so I want to begin tonight with, with that foundation it is a universal call to what does it mean to be human you are created by a creator who is wise and good you were made to know him to be known by him, to love him, to trust him, to worship him. And someday, someday we will experience that perfectly forever and ever and ever. But for now, we get a foretaste of that in a myriad of different kinds of relationships in which we're loved, in which we're served, in which we're cared for, in which we're given the opportunity to lay down our lives to serve and love other people. 
And those kind, different kinds of relationships take all kinds of different shapes. They, some of them are covenantal, some of them aren't. But, but they're, they're all a context in which we can experience and know something of what God is like, something of what his love is like, something of what his grace is like, his beauty, his tenderness, and his kindness is like. And all of us in those relationships have been called to put on display who he is and what he's like, both in what we do and in just bearing the image of God in relationship with other people. So here's what I want us to do. It's 725. Um, that was the intro. Uh, we're going to take about a six-minute break, exactly a six-minute break. You can use the bathroom, grab something to drink, pick up a book um, before they sell out, um, and then we will come back at exactly 734, and we'll talk about sex. And then we're going to talk about sex. All right, let's get back together. And... Keep going. So, at 5 o'clock tonight, I got a haircut. I was at Proper Barber. And I had just been laid back in the chair. Um, woman who seemed nice had a razor at my throat. And she was trimming up my beard, removing excess hair, cutting along the jawline. None of you care, but trust me. This is an amazing story. So as I'm laying here, I'm kind of just contemplating actually the reality, that, the, the strange reality that um, every time you let someone else shave you, you're entrusting your life. Like she's literally, she could kill me right then, and there's nothing I could do about it. And my son is, is standing across from me at the barbershop watching this whole thing happen, and I just realized she could go crazy right now, kill me. I mean, as I'm thinking that exact thought, just contemplating more as a, as a philosophical idea and less as kind of an urgent, I'm really afraid kind of thing, um, this song comes on the radio. No lie. I don't know if you've heard this song. I've heard it several times. I actually was anticipating mentioning the song tonight, and so I actually saw it as an act of God's providence and kindness that it came on the radio as I was at Proper, and then I heard the song, Take Me to Church. Have you heard the song, Take Me to Church? Um, I don't know how to exactly say his name, Hosier, Hoser. I don't want to call him Hoser because I feel like I'm insulting him. Um, Hosier. I don't know. Um, Hoser. Uh, so the song Take Me to Church came on um, and I was blissful and happy and thankful that I could actually mention the song having heard it literally within the last two hours. Um, and the song, if you haven't heard the song, it is um, essentially this narrative that this man begins to tell that, that he wants to interact with the divine. He wants to um, find atonement. He wants to be made particularly made whole. There's a beautiful line in the song where he says, they say we're all broken and we are. And then he moves on and he begins to say, take me to church. And then he goes, amen, that whole thing. Um, and, and at the heart of the song, though, is this desire for wholeness, this desire to, to touch something of the transcendent in the act of sex with this particular woman. The song is, is a call to take me to church, take me to the bedroom, let's have sex, because there, there's where the transcendent comes into contact. There's, if there is a God, if there's something like God, then that's as close as we can possibly get um, to, to who he is. Um, if there's a God who redeems us, if there's a God who takes us in our brokenness and makes us whole, if I'm going to feel that kind of wholeness, that kind of completion, well, that's, that's 
about as close as I can get, or at least imagine getting. I don't think he's that off base. If you track the songs through our history that touch upon the idea of sex, the act of sex, it's startling. Just go through and read the lyrics. How many of those songs make reference to, at, the least, at, at least a nod towards, the idea that something of the transcendent, something of God, is touched in this act? That what's happening when two people have sex is not just a physical act that results in, in a ple- hopefully a pleasurable outcome for everybody involved. And know that what we're actually experiencing in this moment is something of God. I want to begin our discussion of sex um, not by telling you all the things that the Bible prohibits. I want to hold out to you a compelling and beautiful picture of what human sexuality is meant to lead us to. And I think the, the writer of that song, as blasphemous in places as that song is, is actually onto something very, very profound. Um, and, and we begin simply with the, the basic idea that God made sex. And he wants it to be good. He doesn't want sex to be bad. Can I just say that? Everybody acknowledge that that's logical and hopefully rational and makes sense to, to everybody involved. Um, but, but listening to the wrong set of preachers over the last 50 years or so, you might have, have misunderstood that the actual purpose of sex. God wants, he invented it, he made it up, he, he created it. Um, this this insanely, and, and I've said this like three times now, and I don't feel like anybody acknowledges it, and, and maybe that's just because you guys don't know what sex is, and that's great, um, but, but sex is just insanely awkward. It just is. It is wonderfully awkward, and God made it up, and I think he made it up with a serious sense of humor. Like, I'm going to have people do this, and the angels are not like, think it's dirty at all. They're going like, why? Like, this is weird. It's just flailing around and limbs and it's just, it's, but, but he made it to be good. It's not, don't, eh, that's the problem. It's, yay. Um, he's, he made it to be good. He made it to be enjoyed. He made it to be beautiful. And he made it to be an expression of our, ultimately, our relationship with him. Um, here's, Here's where we go. One, God created it, and then moving exactly where we went in the first part. Um, and, and he created it as one of, one of our relational expressions of communion with him. Here, here's what I believe. I believe that every single person in this room has within them, hardwired in them, a desire to see and know and experience absolutely, with with absolute fullness, with no shame, communion with God himself. The way that Lewis talks about it in in Weight of Glory, with which I find of his writings, a, a book that only hints in places towards sexuality, one of the most deeply sexual books he wrote, where he never talks about sex. But but he says um, in that book that each of us long not merely to see that which is beautiful, but to be swallowed up in it, to be absorbed in it. Here's what I believe. 
that that desire is hardwired in each and every one of us. And, and one of the places where it finds fullest expression, where it was meant to find fullest expression, is when you stand before another image bearer of God, another person who's meant, who's designed to reflect back to you the transcendent, the divine, beauty itself. Naked and unashamed. And, and now, unlike any other place in your life, you are invited without shame to touch this beauty, to be absorbed in this beauty, to, to, to find the heights of pleasure and joy in experiencing the reflection back to you of the goodness, the beauty, holiness of God. That's what sex is. Something is meant to happen on your wedding night and hopefully most nights afterwards. That is, yeah, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be Great, it's supposed to be this, this act of just intimacy and friendship and all of the other things that sex is. But it is also meant to be holy. And, and I use the word holy there not simply to communicate pure, although it's that. I, I use the word holy here to communicate that it is meant to be one of the, the most powerful ways in which you encounter God himself. Now, in our communion with God, that communion, that relationship, it, it is designed to happen within certain parameters. And here I'm talking about just purely as we think about Christian worship and what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. In other words, um, you, are not just you don't just waltz into the presence of God. We, we, we worked our way through the book of Revelation. One of the things that we did over and over and over again um, through, those, through those months is go back again and again and again to Revelation 4 and 5. And one of the, the, the most primary foundational things meant to be communicated to us in Revelation 4 and 5 is, is that this is a throne room, and particularly this is one seated on the throne to whom you, not, you do not just casually waltz in. No, you were invited in. And you were only invited in on the basis of the body and the blood of Jesus. In other words, you were only allowed into the presence of God to experience real communion, real intimacy with the God who made you, that you were made to know forever and ever and ever. The only basis on which you're allowed to experience that intimacy, to know that kind of communion, is on the basis of the body and the blood of Jesus. In other words, on the basis of a covenant that has been formed at an altar. That Christ took our sins. Christ died our death. Christ was slain in our place. And that was not only to see to it that our sins were dealt with, it was also to establish um, a covenantal relationship with the living God so that, what did Peter say? He might bring us to God. In other words, um, if, 
If human sexuality, if sex with another human being is meant to be ultimately an expression of, um, one expression of, one particular expression of, of our communion, our intimacy with the God of the universe, then, then we should look to that relationship and learn something about what the, the, um, what the context is in which sexuality is meant to reflect that reality. And the most foundational thing you can know about your relationship with God is you do not get to enjoy Him apart from the covenant blood of Jesus. Likewise, marriage as a holy and beautiful and glorious and good and awkward thing is meant to be experienced only in the the confines of a covenant in which two people have come to an altar and laid down their lives and died so that they no longer belong to themselves but belong to one another. This is why in the the Bible's description of it, biblical theology of what sex is, it, it simply gets distorted beyond all recognition if you pluck it from, from the particular context of, of, of marriage and, and place it anywhere else. We're going to talk about um, where anywhere else kind of leaves you. But it, 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 where we begin is not with, with all of the, the places, all, all of the wrong things with sex, but, but it here, here in this safe, glorious place where I've stood in an altar before the God of the universe and I've laid down my life saying, I no longer belong to me, I belong to this woman, and this woman named Jenny has insanely, I mean, I tried to warn her, insanely said, my life is no longer mine, but it belongs to you. And now um, we've been bound together before the God of the universe in a covenant. There and only there is there safety. Is there the kind of purity and beauty that, that, that gives expression to the kind of holy joy that you're experiencing in human sexuality? Sex is is one of the ways we give expression to, that we experience our longing for, ultimately our desire for God himself. Um, sexuality is the experience of deep intimacy and full exposure to the divine image in another. It, it is learning with another human being to, to express the kind of intimacy that I'm to have with God. The, the second thing um, and, and this is when we begin to touch on the issue of homosexuality. Um, there is a massive emphasis. We're going to see this in Romans 1, which we're going to read um, here in, in a couple of minutes. That, that one of the ways that, that sex within the context of marriage um, puts on display the image of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God in the gospel, is that it is two, um, it is two different beings, two differently fitted human beings. This is the, the language that's used in Genesis 2 when he describes the making of man and woman, that these people are fitted differently for one another. That as they come together, that they, that they, they demonstrate, they put on display that the image and goodness and beauty of God um, in, in a way that um, neither could do on their own. There's something about a male and female coming together in marriage, a male and female coming together in the act of sex, that, that is a, a picture of the holiness of God, the fullness of God, the wholeness of what it means to bear his image. That, 
the, the, homosexual, the, the homosexual act simply doesn't put on display. Um, so so the, the other aspect of, of seeing and displaying in sexuality that the image and the glory and the beauty of God is that they here are, 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 not just, are not just two different individuals, but, but two individuals that express the beauty of God, the character of God, um, the, the image of God in very, very unique ways, in ways that are very, very unique to their gender. And they come together, and as one, they give expression to the image of God in a way that they could never do so on their own. Again, this is what sex is, biblically. Now, if this is how God has created sex to be, um, not only has he created sex, but he's created to do something to bear his image in the world, to bear his image as two people experience this kind of communion with one another. Um, then, then what about sin? What has sin done? What has sin done to sex? And so if you'll flip over to Romans chapter 1, I want us to read, starting in verse 18 together. As I do so, I want to be careful that we hear this text rightly, that we understand um, what Paul is doing in these verses and what he's not doing. Um, oftentimes in the debates around homosexuality, these verses um, get kind of pulled out as a proof text. I, I, I do think homosexuality is addressed um, ve- very directly in these verses, um, but the main point that Paul's making is actually a far broader one than simply to address homosexuality. So, so when you see where he goes here, if you think in this room, hey, homosexuality um, or, or same-sex attraction isn't something I particularly struggle with, and therefore what Paul has to say in these verses doesn't directly relate to me, um, actually it has everything to do with all of us in this room. And so starting in verse 18, I'm going to read. Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Here's what Paul does in these verses. He describes 
um, from 20,000 feet, a spiral of sin that, that, that corrupts all of humanity. And, and here's how he describes it. He doesn't describe it as kind of all-out rebellion, like here's a list of commands, and we decided to break them all. Um, I, uh, my first year in college, I was at a very, very strict college, and they had a list of rules that my roommates and I found to be dumb. And so we had a poster in our closet that we would cover during inspections that had a list of our goal of rules to break before the end of the year. Um, and so uh, we went down the list and literally checked every single rule off the list it was a glorious day, and we got to the last one. Um, that, that's not the way he describes that mankind's rebellion against God. It's not a list of rules that we violated. No, he describes it as, um, in the simplest of terms, mankind refused to give thanks to God. You want to know what the bottom line sin of humanity is? It's not sex. It's not bad movies. It's not bad traffic. It's ingratitude. Isn't that crazy? I always find that shocking. I still find that shocking. You look at a world filled with, with war and violence and just horrific things. And Paul's entire argument in, the, in, in this, probably his greatest and clearest argument for describing the world that we live in, his fundamental argument begins with the, the, the reason why we live in a world like we do right now, marked by the things that it is marked with, is that mankind has refused to acknowledge and give thanks to the God who made him. I find that mind-boggling. And what he begins to describe is because we refuse to look up, because we refuse to acknowledge the God who made us, um, a, a, a spiral begins. And that spiral is one that, that turns slowly, ever, inward and more inward and more inward and more inward. So, so even the description he uses, they refuse to acknowledge God or give thanks to God. And so rather than serving him, rather than acknowledging him and loving him, what did they do? They turned and they began to look at birds and creeping things and created things, even one another. So they began to live as though created things were God, living for a certain kind of promotion, living for sexual pleasure, living for power living for comfort, living for wealth, serving still, something though, not, at least it's not all internal, still looking out, but, but this spiral begins, and as it begins to turn, the circle begins to tighten, so that the fundamental result of our refusal to acknowledge God, our refusal to give thanks to God, our refusal to honor God, is ultimately we find ourselves worshiping ourselves. And so when you get to the end of chapter 1, the description there is, is not merely, hey, here's all the things that humanity is doing wrong. It's here's what humanity looks like when it refuses to worship God and instead man worships himself. You get covetousness, you get deceitfulness, you get murder, you get strife. That's what you find. Now, this middle section that deals specifically with the issue of sexuality, 
Um, I, I actually think that it, it begins with um, sexual sin outside of marriage, so people having sex with one another outside of the covenant of marriage, and then it turns to describe um, homosexual practice um, in particular in these verses. Um, as um, men and women give up that which is natural, that, that which was designed by the God who made them, and burn with passion for one another. Um, the, 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 the idea in that text is not so much, here's, again, a list of things that humanity does wrong. Rather, it's saying, here's what will begin to happen in humanity when men and women refuse to acknowledge and give thanks to God. As we begin to turn in on ourselves... One of the ways that that turning in on ourselves is given expression is with our own sexuality. And, and please, don't jump to homosexuality. Men and women will begin to find and seek sexual pleasure outside of a covenant where they've laid down their lives for another human being. One of my favorite authors uses the phrase, they begin to masturbate with other human beings. And here's where I'm less afraid of offending you. If you are pursuing sex outside of marriage, that's what you're doing. You are trying to pursue something, gain something, get something for yourself that you are unwilling to lay down your life to have. It is an expression that no matter what you feel in this moment, or even better, what you will feel in that moment, it is an expression of each of our desires to worship ourselves. And for those of you who are married in this room, oftentimes married sex simply continues that same pattern. Sex is still about you worshiping yourself your own pleasure, your own fulfillment, when here is this gift given you by God in which you were to experience pleasure and joy, not in your own fulfillment, but in the fulfillment of another. The point of Romans 1 is not to say, hey, homosexuality is a sin. It's to say that in, in the whole course of humanity, as we refuse to acknowledge and give thanks to God, we will turn in on ourselves. And we will begin to, rather than worshiping God, begin to worship created things. We will begin to find and seek our pleasure and our fulfillment um, in using other people for sexual fulfillment. And as we continue to turn in on ourselves, uh, Paul says that one of the ways that gets expressed in society is through acts of homosexuality. Now, I, I want to return to what I said at the beginning. There are massively unpopular things in this book. Um, there, there are writers scrambling these days to try to find some way to soften what the Bible says unequivocally about the nature of homosexual sex. And I, and I want to I make a distinction here between homosexual desire and homosexual sex. Um, and, and for those of you who struggle with homosexual desire, Again, I want to 
as passionately, as joyfully as I can recommend Washington Waiting. But, but what Paul is arguing for here is that one of the ways we express our refusal to acknowledge and worship God is through our sexuality. And is through pursuing sexual acts that are not submitted to, not reflective of the character and the goodness and the, and the glory and the grace and the gospel of God. And that is both true for homosexual acts outside of marriage, which, and, and that is also true of heterosexual acts outside of marriage. The Bible is unequivocal. In other words, it doesn't, it, it doesn't go ever hint towards any concept of marriage that is not a man or a woman. It, it, um, you will find text after text after text that holds up again um, to two fundamental sins. This word that is translated sexual immorality, it's translated a bunch of different phrases, a bunch of different ways throughout the Bible. But essentially the word is porneia. You hear the word pornography in that word. The, the word porneia connotes any sexual act outside of a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. And it is universally condemned in the Bible. Not because God's a killjoy. Not because he wants your sex to be bad. But because he wants your sex to be holy and good and all that it was designed to be. And so sin has taken us, um, men and women who are meant to point to, to look at, to, to reflect that the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God and to express it through our sexuality if God gives us uh, the gift of marriage. And sin has turned us from honoring God, reflecting God in the world, to turn in on ourselves, to worship ultimately ourselves, and to begin, um, rather than bending our lives for the flourishing of other people, bending our lives, laying our lives down for the good of other people, instead we begin to worship and honor ourselves, and people simply become a means to the end that I want. And that's true in your job, that might be true in your marriage, and it's true, it is absolutely true in any and all sexual acts outside of marriage. By definition, because you have not laid down your life, because you have not entered into a covenant before the God of the universe, the person in front of you is simply a means to your own end of pleasure for at least this night. So what do we do with this? Flip over to Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> As you're turning there, there's, there's some of you in this room who find yourself vigorously nodding. Um, perhaps overjoyed um, with the, the conversation we had a few weeks ago before the sermon began in Psalm 51. Um, find yourself, um, maybe you were some of the, the Facebook posters who, who saw the Supreme Court's decision as kind of this, um, this great and, and final kind of declaration of war with the sinners on one side and the religious folk on the other. I, I just want, before we, we turn to Romans 3, I would love for you to go home tonight and read Romans 2 and the first half of chapter 3. Because the heights 
that Paul goes on to describe uh, of the self-worship that he, um, that he describes from 20,000 feet in chapter 1 find their highest expression in religion. Um, Romans chapter 2 and 3, um, Paul, after um, laying down what we read in that first chapter, he then turns um, to the moral, um, morally upright, the morally self-righteous, and those who believe that their religious practices somehow give them leverage with God. And he says, all of you are guilty of the exact same thing, refusing to acknowledge and give thanks to God. Um, let's read Romans 3, starting verse 21. Favorite two words in the Bible. But now. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? Here's the thing, every single one of us in this room probably feels some sting of shame. None of us are clean. Maybe you escaped sexual sin somehow. I, I have no idea how. But maybe somehow, I mean, you made it through high school or college or wherever, and you escaped what, 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 to what you would call sexually clean and pure, and you're staying somewhere. And, and, and so let's just put all of us in the same boat right now, and we all walk out of chapter one of Romans stained, feeling unclean feeling shame. And, and the church largely hasn't helped for the last 50 years, right? Sin, maybe even particularly homosexual sin, this is the worst kinds of sin, the most defiling kinds of sin. Um, one of my... Uh, one of the preachers in our network loves to tell the story that he was at a, a, a youth rally and, and the, um, at the youth rally the, the preacher takes a red rose and he says, look at the red rose. And they want to look at the red rose, and he sends the red rose down. Everybody passes the red rose around. He said, somebody bring me the rose. Um, and so somebody brings the rose to him. He holds the rose up. The rose, rose after being handed around, about 300 teenagers um, in the room. And in this context of, of sexual sin, he holds up this rose, falling apart now, broken. Um, half the petals are gone. And he said, who would want this rose? This pastor yells out, God wants the rose. But now, what Paul goes on to describe, let's just read it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Here's what God does. 
He takes all of us, all of us who have turned in on ourselves, who have sexually turned in on ourselves, who have found ways to worship ourselves and use other people and use this gift that God's created. And rather than honoring him with it, rather than giving thanks to him with it, rather than, rather, rather than maybe being called to pursue a life of chastity and pursuing holiness unto God, and we've used it and we've wielded it to our own ends for our own pleasure, henceforth worshiping ourselves. So we're all stained. Paul says, but now. God took his son and he pushed his son forward. He put him forward as a propitiation. What that means is that all of those stains, all of that sin, all of that corruption, all of those ways that we have used the gifts of God, used sexuality for our own ends rather than honoring the God who made it, Puts it on his son. So that all shame is gone. All guilt can be gone. All that would corrupt this beautiful gift given to us. All that you would think even now, it'll never be holy for me. It'll never be like that for me. He cleanses us utterly. Completely holy restores to us this gift. And not only that, some of you in this room, maybe you, you identify as a homosexual, you identify as being attracted to another human being, you hear this teaching, and you hear what Romans 1 says, you read other passages in Scripture like 1 Timothy or 1 Corinthians um, or, or, or the Levitical law, you read these texts, and, and you find yourself despairing, saying, I'll never be able to follow Jesus and experience this kind of intimacy. Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Here's what the gospel does for every single one of us. It is it says to us again and again and again, sex is only a signpost. Oh, it's a great one. But it is only ever a signpost. And if for whatever myriads of reasons that that particular signpost has not been given to you in this life, the substance is on offer. You were not made to find your ultimate joy and fulfillment in sex, but in God. But now you might be cleansed and made whole, but now all of that shame might be put away, but now you might, you might be given this holy, holy gift, but more important than all of it, but now he has brought us home. You were made to know God and be known by him. You were made to experience the deepest kinds of intimacy. You were made to enjoy him forever and ever and ever. You were made not merely to enjoy the signposts that he has put along the road, but to go home to your God and to know him forever and ever and ever. This 
This is all that sex is. A beautiful, glorious, good signpost. Given, given in the context of marriage. That men and women might look beyond their own marriages, might look beyond the sex that they find in those marriages, and look to the God who loves them. Let's pray. And then, um, actually before I pray, I want to invite all of you to come back tomorrow night. And tomorrow night we're going to get into um, specifically marriage, how marriage is shaped by the gospel. Um, we're going to get into more nitty-gritty on, okay, what does this look like then to live um, life as a single person? Life uh, to at least um, experiencing the call to celibacy right now. And that might be a long call to celibacy. It might be a short-term call to celibacy. But what does it look like to honor God in that way? Um, those of you who are engaged and are preparing to get married, um, we want to uh, talk to you. Um, about, about things, conversations, things you can be doing right now to prepare yourself for marriage. Um, and, and so that is all going to be happening tomorrow night. It'll be um, things going on all over the place um, here in the building tomorrow night. But I invite you to come back again, 6.30, um, Thanks for, uh, for listening to me for two nights in a row. Um, if you came to the Sunday night service, this had to be a little bit painful. Um, so, uh, but let me pray. And God, I pray for my friends in this room. I pray that no one would leave here with shame. I pray that that they would hear right now in the words of Paul that they don't have to. That because of the work of Jesus, that they don't have to be ashamed of anything right now. That you've, with the blood of Christ, cleansed them, washed them, made them holy. You've adopted them as sons and daughters. You've clothed them in white. You've removed spots and you've called them to yourself. I, I pray tonight for those in this room who are not married. I, I maybe even particularly pray for those in this room who can't even foresee the hope of marriage. I, I, pray that, I pray that they would find a great hope right now, knowing that in you there is no loss. They're not just waiting for some fulfillment that may or may not come. That they can have joy, they can have be deeply known, that they can be called to serve and to love and to bear your image in unique and beautiful and powerful ways and never be married. And so God, I pray that they would leave here trusting that you're good and you have their good in mind. And God, for all of us, that we would trust your word, that we know that you're good, that you love us, that you're wise, you're not a killjoy. That our greatest joy is not found in any of, the, any of the pleasures that are merely signposts, but are found in what those signposts point to, namely you. In your name we pray, amen.